Hello, and welcome to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. In each episode, we explore the trends shaping tomorrow's global mergers and acquisitions landscape. I'm Vito Sperduto, co-head of Global M&A. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with my colleagues, Larry Grafstein, Deputy Chairman of Global Investment Banking, and Ben Mandel, Head of Canadian M&A, and we discussed our outlook for 2023. In this three-part series, we explore topics impacting deal-making in these disrupted times, including what the new normal for M&A will look like and how the rise of activism and the shifting regulatory landscape may impact boardroom decisions next year and beyond. I think another driver is going to be that going into 23, as we've seen in 22, certainly concerns around larger transactions, regulatory scrutiny, I think a more aggressive stance by a lot of the agencies in the U.S., the emergence of, you know, now that you've got a separate U.K., their regulatory body taking a harder look at transactions, which is happening in Microsoft Activision right now, you know, still the EU. I mean, there's a lot of jurisdictions that you have to appease. I mean, how do you think about that? And I think that's going to be a, a limiter potentially on larger deals. I think the U.S. administration has been very clear that they want to uh, be much tougher on regulating transactions generally. Uh, they want to look at it through a wider lens, not just on you know strict antitrust law, but on related issues such as environmental issues, such as labor issues. And in 2021, the new administration was just putting its people in place. There were several deals that were litigated, and uh, the DOJ and the FTC are going to continue to do that. And even though they've lost a few of the cases, uh, they've won a couple as well, and they're just uh, clearly going to keep coming in that regard because they want to create an overall deterrent effect on on transactions that create concentration or or potentially ESG related issues. I think through COVID and and again exacerbated by the situation in the Ukraine and other geopolitical tensions, is governments have become more inward looking, and I think a big part of that is being played out through the regulatory pressures that, that we're seeing. And so if I look at this situation in Canada, where there's some, some real themes that I think apply globally, is we're certainly seeing Competition Bureau be more active, take a harder line on some of the transactions that are happening. And also from a government perspective, we're seeing pressure on certain aspects that they're trying to protect. And so one that's recently come out is around protection of critical minerals, right. where the government's essentially saying, if you're a foreign state-owned enterprise, you can't buy critical mineral companies. And subsequent to that, we saw them force the divestiture of some lithium-based companies because of the importance of battery materials. So, you know, I think there's, that's going to be an increasing theme. And that's an example in Canada, but I think we're going to see that. Around Definitely 2023, we're going to see that. Yeah, and I, I think some of the, as we think about sort of years way in the past, I mean, we always saw significant investment from China as an example, right? Uh, I think they've put limiters on that themselves in terms of what corporations there can do externally. And it's also forced some divestitures that are coming by companies from China. So I think you know, we're gonna see a bit more scrutiny on it. Um, I do think that you know, it'll be interesting to see how far the regulators take it from uh, what's going to be the actual result of a transaction which historically it had been the evaluation of deals had been more about actual impact versus necessarily what might be a potential impact going forward, which I think 
we've certainly heard a lot of the regulators talk about the fact that historical reviews have been too narrowly focused, and as a result, they're taking a broader look at it. So whenever you get to a situation where it's been clear that historical precedent isn't necessarily going to drive the day, I think it's creating greater uncertainty. And so, you know, especially if, for example, I know we've looked at a number of transactions where clients did see issues, but what they did was they came up with, well, here's the remedies we're going to propose going into the deal. That doesn't necessarily solve it right now, given the stances that we're seeing from these different agencies, and not just in the U.S. You know, and another factor is that there's always some degree of antitrust risk in, in most deals. Uh, you know, very few law firms will ever tell you there's zero risk. Um, there is clearly things are going to take longer. And so if you, even if you assume that you have the, a, a very strong antitrust position or you have a high degree of conviction that, that a deal should happen now as opposed to waiting, uh, when you announce a deal, your company does go into a little bit of a, a period of uncertainty because people think that there may be a new kind of working environment. So it affects employees when you're in limbo like that for a longer time. The regulators know this. And they're playing that card, too, because they're, they're saying to boards, you know, okay, if you want to go forward with this, we're going to look at it very closely. We may take you to court for a year or two, and you'd best be ready to have to fight that all the way through. And I will say that that does lead to some people hesitating on pulling the trigger on, on, on sign-up. Well, there's impacts to that on both sides, right? So if you're the vendor... You've got to decide how, how much time am I prepared to spend and, and what sort of risks am I prepared to take as the seller. And as the buyer, you need to have financing that's there and ready to go, right? And you've got to look at the period of time. If you're taking one or two years, look at what's happened in the financing markets, right? So it creates a real, a real risk for, for deals. I mean, at RBC, we're fortunate. We have a strong balance sheet, and we've, we've tried to accommodate clients on, on these deals. But the overall environment is more challenging for banks. Look, I think the other piece is just, as you mentioned, financing. We are going to see, as we head into 23, some larger financings that have been holding up that market you know, have, will be settled, for better or worse, to be honest, in terms of where um, some of the banks have to place those financings. And that should give us a measure as to what's possible going forward. I know in a lot of conversations we've had with clients recently, when we talk about what the financing markets look like and what's possible. They've had to adjust to rates that today are over 2x what they were 18 or 24 months ago. And as a result, it's just, it's a new calculus, that's all. It's just an additional risk. And you know the reality is we'll come to a view as to what's appropriate from a model perspective and take that into account. And there is a positive aspect to this too, which is if knowing that you're in a tougher financing environment, and if knowing that you're in a tougher competition review environment, if knowing it's going to take longer to, do, to get a deal closed, and you still want to proceed with a deal, that usually means the deal makes sense. Yeah. And so you, all these little tests that people have to go through, you know, gut checks that you don't really have to do in the frenzied environment of the peak of you know, 18 months ago or, or other cycles that we've seen, you know, it, it does mean that often the very best deals get done in, in an environment like this. Another factor that's influencing the markets is governments continuing to try to shape corporate actions. And a couple examples of that recently have been around share buybacks, where it started in the U.S. with Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, where 
he's trying to put forward a, a 1% tax on share buybacks. And that was followed up in Canada with, uh, in the fall economic statement where the government's signaled intentions to put forward a 2% tax on share buybacks starting about a year from now. So I think that'll continue to influence in the next year how companies think about using their capital and return of capital to shareholders. And also in, in a rising interest rate environment, dividend stocks, utility stocks, you know, that, that affects their, their dynamics as well because they're often viewed as bond substitutes. So the whole dividend versus share buyback question is now also affected by tax, uh, maybe a little more than it was before. And that in turn, you know, relates to M&A and capital allocation. Yeah, and I think from a capital perspective in terms of cash that they're using and how they're using it going forward, we're certainly going to see, as the market kind of normalizes or stabilizes some, that it's going to be used increasingly for transactions. I think right now we're seeing that it's been hard to pull the trigger, and so they haven't spent that cash in that, in that manner. Um, so, but, but, and we are seeing the transactions that are getting done from a corporate perspective are heavily weighted towards cash deals. But it's a, good, it's, it's a good point because it's a symptom of the overall uh, proactive regulatory environment uh, in a way as it pertains to, to mergers and acquisitions. And I think, interestingly, it also has uh, led to a little bit more review of sponsor-related transactions on the regulatory side. Even though often sponsors uh, have specialties in domains, they don't usually have as much uh, market share within those domains as a, as a large public company might. So you would think, well, therefore, they're not as subject to competition review. But in fact, they're also, uh, they're, there's an effort in Washington, I think, in Ottawa and other capitals around the world to really make sure that, that sponsors somehow don't uh, have an unfair advantage in that. And they're looking at different ways to regulate those types of transactions. Yeah, roll-ups has been a real theme for private equity funds, and so we'll see if that has an influence on the continuation of that. And of course, the financing environment for sponsors is really depends on a stabilization and, and leverage, leverage loans. Yeah, look, I think the right now, if, it, if you look at where the, the dial is pointed, I mean, certainly corporates have an advantage, just given their stability from a cash perspective on balance sheets or the like, uh, access to capital. And I think the sponsors are, I don't want to say they're taking a pause, but it's certainly at a slower pace than it has been since the second half of 20, to be honest, from an LBO perspective. But you know, once it opens up, I think they're going to be leading the way on that front. Uh, they're certainly right now trying to find more bespoke opportunities in the marketplace. I think they're keeping a very close eye on where certain targets are from a public perspective and whether those are actionable. And I think you know, what's going to need to happen on that front from an actionability of take privates is that even if there is a significant stock price decline, I mean, as we all know, I think boards have to come to a realization that their prices now have reset to a different level versus the view of where that price was 12, 9, 6 months ago. I mean, we saw a transaction this year that uh, we hadn't seen in a while a company in, I think, around the first quarter time frame rejected a bid for $115. And then in the second or early third quarter, I think, they sold for $70 plus. So, so that reset has happened more rapidly in some places. But overall, there is a psychology always and a uh, behavioral economics dimension to M&A 
it relates to people anchoring in their own mind, you know, what a fair price is. And it's very hard when you, uh, in the recent past, have seen you know, more robust share price levels to say that it's a, a great time to sell a company. Um, and yet we do see transaction volume because for every buyer out there, there's a seller. And it is interesting that we do and have seen and do expect share consideration to be and relative valuation transactions to be more prominent in environments like this. Because if companies are correlated and they've traded more or less in the same pattern, uh, then you're not really uh, prejudicing yourself by doing a relative valuation deal if the, if the ownership of the company is more or less the same pro forma as it might have been when both were trading higher. It's, it's such an interesting point because in, in periods of disruption and greater volatility, it always takes sellers a bit longer to catch up to the expectations that buyers have come to. And so you have a, a gap for a period of time in, in value expectations. And so I think your point is we're starting to catch up and close that gap a little bit. I also find it interesting that when values go down and prices are low, in most yeah. industries, <laughs> people buy more when things are on sale. Yeah. And that's not really the dynamic in M&A always. And I think it does create an interesting buyer opportunity for those that have conviction and are prepared yeah. to put capital to work. We've had situations recently where clients have asked us, well, when is this seller going to get realistic in terms of value? And it, it highlighted the difference between public market and private market valuations. And I think the public markets, certain companies saw a rationalization of value this year on a quicker time frame. And I think the private markets are just catching up. And I think what's driving that in the second half of 22, that we're going to see continue in 23, is that the buyers have had to reset what they're capable of doing. And so when the buyers aren't there for those private assets in a more readily available fashion, you're going to see the private sellers get more realistic in terms of what the proper value is. You're still going to see highly sought-after assets, coveted brands, however you want to consider it, selling for significant values. But it's still going to be dependent on what's available from a buyer perspective. And I think that's why if we were sitting here talking about the global market outlook for 2024, we'd have a, a little bit more robust optimism. But we think 2023 will be a transition year. And it'll be transition year economically, but also psychologically. Yeah. Now, I do think when we look at 23 and we think of what the potential volume could be, I mean, will it be a year on par with sort of maybe the average of what the five years before COVID were at in terms of volume? Certainly. It should be above that, to be honest. Um, we just need to reset our expectation that it's not going to be what we saw in 21 was just an anomaly. And it will not be across the board. 2021 was definitely anomalous in that respect. Yeah. yeah. But there are sectors, I mean, you know, when we look at some different geographies as an example, um, certainly the you know, volumes in Europe in 22 are down less than what we're seeing in the rest of the world, right? So just to kind of level set, I think the performance perspective in terms of announced deal volume, I think globally volumes are off 35% in 22. The U.S. is off about 43%. And Europe is off probably about 25%. Even with the war. Even with the war, and I think the you know the re the reason is just it was a smaller base in terms of it didn't have the dramatic pop in twenty one that you saw in other geographies, um, and so you're seeing some of that play out. 
but I think it, um, you still need a constructive market in North America to drive rest of the world. So as we think about sectors, um, you know, Ben, you've seen a lot of activity in, in energy, in resources, uh, mining, utilities as well. Anything energy commodity related feels like an area that was a leader in 2022 and will continue to be strong into 2023. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Canada is, is defined by the resource industry and over half of the public companies in Canada are resource-based and energy is a huge part of that. I think the strong commodity backdrop has really fueled free cash flow generation from a lot of these companies. And so a lot of these public corporates have fortress balance sheets where they can look to either return capital or go and pursue M&A. I think alongside that, you're seeing large corporates, foreign corporates looking to divest out of Canadian non-core assets. And so that's created selling opportunities. I think you also have sponsors who are looking at a window of opportunity now where valuations have been at a place they haven't been in a number of years. And so they're taking that opportunity to capitalize on that. So all of that has come together to create a really robust energy M&A environment and hard to know where the commodity prices are going to go. But I think that given geopolitical tensions and focus on energy security, I think there's going to be continue to be a, a pretty constructive commodity price environment. I do think as we think about different uh, industry verticals, there's some that are always up there in terms of, you know, we've talked about tech. Uh, the technology sector is always going to be a leading vertical from an M&A perspective, just because it crosses over into so many other areas. There's so much convergence that occurs. Um, you know, and I think there's been specific focus on it by some of the specialized funds from a private equity perspective. Uh, I think you're, you see a lot of headlines from a lot of the larger technology companies, but there's also just a lot of development that's continually going on. And so I, I still feel like that's going to see significant activity in very specific pockets. Be curious to see how the larger tech companies play, because I think for the first time in their evolutions, they've had to do significant cutbacks in the second half of 22. But again, even if you look at where they were pre-pandemic to now, in many cases, those significant cuts in headcount, as an example, still bring them back to uh, levels where they're above where they were pre-pandemic. And so there was just such a build during the pandemic, and I think they're rationalizing back a little bit. I think the, the regulators are scrutinizing those companies regardless of whether they're doing transactions or not. And so we'll see, they're probably a little bit more on the sideline, but it doesn't mean that technology is gonna slow down at all in, in terms of a vertical of focus from an M&A perspective. It'd be interesting to see how opportunistic buyers are in the tech space. You have so many companies that went public and are trading below their yes. IPO price, yet the founders, the original investors may be well into the money still. And so does that create an opportunity for, you know, again, for whether it's funds or strategics with conviction to go and try and make acquisitions there? Well, certainly those are a number of conversations we're having, so that's been interesting. Uh, I, I do think it's, it's a delicate situation in terms of how it's managed with the shareholder base, as we all know. But, um, you know, there's certainly those are opportunities that are being considered, especially if it's situations that, you know, I think there was a fairly aggressive IPO pipeline at one point, and maybe some companies shouldn't have been public necessarily and are better in a private context, or there's some significant transactions they might want to consider that fit better in a private context. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll see activity in healthcare. We always do uh, healthcare services, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, you know, biotech is one of those sectors that's really been pressured to some degree by the equity market decline. So we expect steady activity in that area. And, and as Vito, as you said before, reconfiguration of industrial conglomerates is a, is a theme usually coming out of this type of cycle, maybe even uh, accentuated by the need to manage costs within a, in an inflationary environment. And I would say there will be casualties as well because we had such a robust bond market for so long and the high yield market will, you know, will We'll open up again, we'll be stronger again, but not every company will succeed. And so I think restructuring will definitely increase uh, in 2023. Uh, we have a restructuring group at RBC that's very busy right now. Uh, again, usually supporting clients who need to think about how to approach liability management. Also, I do think <clears throat> infrastructure is gonna be an area that's gonna be very coveted going forward in 23, as we've seen. And some of it's been just in terms of dollars coming from governments into it in the US and elsewhere. There's a lot of private capital focused on it, whether it be the pension plans or others. And the definition of what's infrastructure is expanding, as we're seeing. And so I think those funds have raised such large pools of capital, they've had to expand that definition and you know, we're certainly seeing a number of transactions, whether it be core elements of communication systems and software, data centers, obviously. Very um, strong area for us. Yeah, and, and so we've participated heavily in that area. Um, I mean, that's going to be an interesting thing to watch, and I know our practice is spanning across industry verticals where infrastructure has an impact. Another important area that cuts across uh, many industries is energy transition. And I think that's going to be a continue, continue to be a really important theme for corporates and investment capital. And I think you're going to see those pools competing for opportunities, whether that's in technologies or projects or commercial matters. And you're starting to see exploration and production companies try and accelerate their journey through the transition and towards decarbonization. So I think that energy transition will be, will be one to watch. As we look towards 23, I would say... What we're advising our clients right now that is most important is to be prepared for when the window opens from an M&A perspective. And I think that just making sure you've got a clear understanding of the, your strategy, and M&A is a core part of any growth strategy, any strategy that our clients are implementing. And so we're working with them closely right now to be ready to make sure we can access the market because I think there is gonna be a benefit from a first access perspective. I think there's important windows that are going to emerge around financing, and I think we need to continue to encourage clients to make sure they're aware of that and thinking yeah. about that in advance. And then having conviction, right? Having conviction on what theses they're going after, what M&A is solving, yeah. and how they're going to close and execute on those deals. Yeah, and my key takeaway complements those. I mean, it's, it's an environment where good deals can still get done and should get done, yes. uh, but they do have to satisfy all the criteria and um, you know, companies and investors have to be very cautious uh, in their risk analysis uh, to make sure they have the conviction uh, that, that the transaction is the right thing to do. You've been listening to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC M&A podcast. Join us for more analysis about what's moving the M&A market in our next episode. Until then, 
Thank you for joining us. And if there are any topics we've discussed that you'd like more information on, please contact us directly or visit our website at www.rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.